Hello and welcome to the Art Department Podcast. We're at episode 58 and we have an interview lined up again for you guys. So it's Emmanuel in San Francisco, it's uh, myself, uh, Jan in Singapore, and our special guest is joining us um, from a yet undisclosed location. Um, but in <laughs> Maui, <Hawaii. laughs> I was going to say the ISS, but okay. Anyway, I think uh, most of you guys already know who it is, but I'm going to throw it over to Emmanuel to give a really short introduction. Yeah, so uh, today we have Craig Mullins on, and uh, uh, I guess I might as well just share this uh, quick story that I've shared before, uh, which is, you know, I've known about his work for many, many years, and uh, back in the Seijun days, uh, I had been posting about some painting that I couldn't crack uh, because I really didn't know what I was doing, uh, and it was this underwater painting that didn't look underwater at all. And uh, Craig was part of that forum, and I uh, I emailed him uh, my painting over and over and over and over <laughs> again uh, until he replied uh, one day with uh, with no words, uh, but just the painting uh, overpainted. And I totally learned, uh, you know, how you know what I had did wrong, you know, with an example and a paint over from Craig, and that's sort of my first interaction with him. Uh, and, you know, it's much appreciated because uh, he didn't have to do that. Um, and I was super persistent. So I'm sure, uh, you know, maybe he just wanted to get me out of his hair. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, just to say that, he, you know, he's it been an inspiration to me even back then. Uh, I've taken since then taken two of his classes at Schoolism, uh, I think, uh, you know, like four or five years ago. Uh, and, you know, learned a lot from that. And, uh, you know, I really want uh, to see what, he, you know, have a chat with him regarding, you know, some of the topics that we normally talk about and see what he thought about it. So uh, here's Craig Mullins, uh, given a little bit of a history about himself, as long as he wants. Uh, and then we'll get into some, some chat. Uh, so Craig... Take it away. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm honored to be here, and thank you to you both for inviting me. Um, gosh, my history. Uh, let's see. I've had an interest in art and uh, engineering and technical things for as long as I could remember. Um, and my training was at first in industrial design, which combines both both of those interests. I went to art center. College of Design, uh, two years in industrial design, and then um, like three years in illustration. Um, I think my, the, the training in, in industrial design was a lot more um, structured, and I got a lot more out of that. And the ability, or, or you know, the well, the, the requirement and idea of being able to delineate things that don't exist was was fascinating to me and how to break things down uh, into their simplest component parts and then apply principles of light and perspective on that to make something that is believable. That was something magical to me. And that's what you get an idea. In illustration, it's more like taking existing things and um, stylizing it or uh, you know, pushing... Um, um, 
I guess, a point of view with an image. Um, I didn't really get into that too much. Um, so I was trained uh, before digital uh, tools. There were, there, there were Macs with McPaint um, in the early 80s. I actually have some of those paintings. Still, they still exist, like paintings done in like 1982. Uh, when I was, uh, how old would I have been in there? 18, 20? Um, and it's funny because it actually looks like me. <laughs> you can tell that who, who did them. Um, but 8-bit art, you know, uh, was not very useful for commercial illustration. So I was trained traditionally uh, at Art Center. And about, I would say... Five years after I graduated, Photoshop and 24-bit color came along. And we were using Photoshop to mostly photobash uh, because that's what Photoshop is designed to do. The idea that you could do a painting from beginning to end with only digital tools and, and drawing with a mouse, nobody was really trying that. So just over the time, I kept on beating at it and beating at it. I said, well, you know, you could do this, you could do that and adapting some more graphical techniques uh, from a gouache painting to, um, to digital medium, that seemed to work out pretty well. Uh, it was extremely difficult to try to imitate oil paint, but you could imitate gouache. Um, so that worked out pretty well. And I just kept on doing you know, the, these goofy little paintings and, and then uh, the Seijin days came along with a whole bunch of really talented young people, very energetic, uh, all came together and we kind of figured it out, uh, how to paint with this uh, new medium. And so since then, um, all kinds of innovations have happened in the digital world, such as photo bashing and 3D and 3D sculpting. Um, and I've been looking at all of those um, technologies as either they are either a tool, a hindrance, a handicap. To a certain extent, the way I look at it now, I mean, I've, I've tried photo bash, paint bash, 3D, every conceivable way of working. I'm always changing how I do things to see if it fits my end. And... I think in 2006, when ZBrush came out, I said, I have to learn 3D or I will be out of a job, similar to 2D animators. But, you know, then I thought, you know, it really doesn't necessarily need to be that way. If, if I became a better 2D artist, if I took all the time that I spent screwing around with Photoshop and actually learned how to draw well, um, I could probably do this in a more unique and personal way uh, than people using ZBrush. Uh, because I think that you know, the more complex and powerful the tool, the more that that bleeds uh, the individual quality of the artwork out. And so, strangely enough, ironically enough, that um, uh, so many young artists went into that, that now you know, I rededicated myself to 2D, anatomy and drawing. I still have a long way to go. Um, but now people uh, who are really good at 2D are, are getting more uh, rare uh, because of the time investment involved, you know, decades sometimes. So that's kind of where I'm at now, is the way I like to work now is no photo bashing, no 3D, 
I try to um, use the digital tools actually in a pretty limited way because I want more of myself to show through that and what I've learned over the time period. But, you know, when I was a, a younger, less, uh, obviously I'm going to use these shortcuts. And in the end, it probably um, slowed down my development as an artist, but it did have short-term benefits to which I'm grateful for. But I've had to kind of go back and fill in holes on my education that possibly 3D or photo bashing filled. And so that's kind of where I'm at now, is I'm trying to simply become a better artist and trying to use the tools and as a deliberate um, and smart a, a way as I can. So that's where I'm at now. Awesome. And when you say become a better artist, you know, like, is it a, a like a fine artist you're looking, uh, like, what does that mean? Distinction. Yeah. Between oh, okay. fine art or illustration, it's um, just more solid, better drawn, better designed, um, just uh, you know, better, better foundation. Like, like what kind of art? Like at the end of it, what kind of art really speaks to you? Like, like is this like, hey, I really want to do this kind of a painting, you know, that kind of a painting, or or this genre, or that genre, or is it just whatever I feel like today? Well, to a certain extent, I mean, my main influences earlier in my artistic life were Sid Mead and John Singer Sargent. And I think my earlier work probably looked like a, a bastardization of both those. But I think over time, you know, as you work over the years, you go off in different directions. Like, you know, I've seen people start out doing digital work that looks a lot like mine and then they go off in, in directions that I wouldn't have gone and I think that's great I mean everybody starts from somewhere um, so yeah I I think it's also one of those things like when you're a younger less developed artist and you need to put something out to a certain technical level the um, seduction of imitating a more established style or artist it's definitely it makes sense from a lot of different um, angles, but eventually you'll probably want to go do something that is only your own, your own genre, your own, own style, but that takes decades. And so that's kind of you know, where I'm at is just trying to, you know, have my own voice. And, you know, I, I think that I got into you know, really big trouble and I think it speaks to the idea of burnout. Um, I think it was probably 2006, right around the time I was thinking, you know, oh God, I've got to, I've got to go, go ZBrush or be out of a job. That you know, a ton of people started getting into to digital uh, painting and, and art and doing some incredible things and things that I couldn't do or even conceive of. And I would look at their artwork and say, that's what I've got to do. That's just amazing. And you know, I would try to like, you know, if they were sitting in front of me, I eat their liver to get their mana or something like that. Um, but the thing is, is <laughs> you can't be somebody else. You, not, not in the long term. And probably the way that you look at your art is not rational and is not accurate. I look at my art, I dislike it intensely. 
but I see from other people's reaction <laughs> that it's not as bad as I think it is. So I have to realize that that is a an illusion, and that if you really do try to do things, you know, stay instead of looking at the world through other people's artwork, look at the world and how you react to it. I mean, this is just something I'm I'm getting better at now that I'm you know almost sixty years old, because I definitely fell into the trap earlier in my life of of looking at other artists and saying, oh, I just want to do work like that. And uh, as I say, that that is very understandable. It's a bit like the dark side. It is a shortcut to short-term power and results. But the long-term, it probably isn't good. But, you know, it, it's all part of the process of the growth of an individual. So it's not something that you know, should be looked down upon. When I see, you know, a 20-something person you know, working in a particular style that may not be their own. I don't say, no, you've got to go develop your own thing right now. I say, no, this is your script. I know, I know that yeah. they're going to. You know, that, that is the progression of an individual through their life. So, you know, um, anyway, what was the question? <laughs> no, it was just basically like, because I, I think I read on your Twitter that, you, um, that you're wanting to uh, illustrate uh, some fantasy uh, things and and I just wondered, you know, if that was something that you've always wanted to or gravitate towards, and and uh, you know where this all this art is culminating oh. to is is your you know ability to 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 do that well, basically. I, yeah, I think on that Twitter thread, you know, I said I wanted to illustrate uh, Wagner's Ring, and um. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Arthur Rackham, amazing English uh, illustrator, did a folio of drawings for for The Ring, um, you know, 150 years ago. And I've always loved those drawings. I mean, I wouldn't you know, work in that style or that idiom. You know, I would go back to you know, the, the music itself. Um, but, yeah, that I, I, I love opera. You know, I... Um, the Ring is, a, for, for people who don't know, it's four operas over four nights. It's about 16 hours long. Um, the saying, uh, it ain't over to the fat lady sings, comes from the fourth opera of the series. <laughs> so um, the Teutonic, you know, with the uh, uh, horns on the helmet, that's, it comes from the Ring Cycle. Um, so if you, if you haven't... Um, you know, ever heard Wagner? I, I think somebody once said that Wagner's music is better than it sounds. <laughs> so, <laughs> which I always thought was a, a oh. funny, uh, funny way of putting it. Um, but yeah, I, I think that I, I, I am an illustrator. Um, that has always been my, my reflex, uh, as opposed to. I don't know. I, I guess I look at it like, uh, you know, in, in music, there there is, like, say, um, say like Johann Strauss's The Blue Danube. Okay, that's what they call program music. That is music that has an association with something in the real world. Okay, then, say, go to uh, Chopin and, um, you know, one of his mazurkas or something. Well, that's completely, I mean, it's a dance, but there's all kinds of music that has no association with pictures or images or anything. It exists in the abstract. And I think there always has been a little bit of, um, 
snobbery toward program music as opposed to absolute music. But um, in the fine art world, yeah, uh, you know, this painting exists in a vacuum um, and is its own universe as opposed to this is an illustration which is connected to something else. At its lowest form, it's connected to selling something. But it may or may not have a life beyond that. You know, I think that you know Norman Rockwell's work was selling something, was selling a magazine, but it has a life after it because it had depth to it. And when an illustration continues to live long after the original product has faded into you know, past memory, that's really something. You know, then it, I think, starts to get into the realm of fine art. Um, Mm-hmm. So I, I guess that's, oh, that's kind of you know in the back of my mind as a goal. You know, I'm trying to do as good a work as I possibly can, and maybe the work will have a, a life beyond that for which it was created. Uh, I, I don't mm-hmm. know if it will or not. Probably not. But you know, you take an illustrator's life work. <laughs> I mean, you take any any artist's work. It's always fascinating to take all the work and put it in a folder and look at all the thumbnails because. If you just come across a new artist and you see one image, you're always kind of interested. I wish to see another image by this person. And uh, is the next image look just like the first one? Well, it has similarities, but you know sometimes um, you, know, you, you see the totality of it, and each individual piece supports the other. And there's kind of a you get what this person is thinking about and and the depth that they look at things as opposed to. Um, just seeing one image, uh, so it it is. I think it's important to look at an artist's entire work. It, a painting by an artist does not exist by itself. It has to be looked at uh, in the context of their other work. Hmm, interesting. Do you, do you have I anything? Was, young? I was just wondering, and, and we're talking a lot about art and, and and that kind of stuff, which is which is great. Um, I'm interested though to to hear a bit more about um, Craig as the person versus Craig as the artist. Um, that's always what interests me. So I was wondering, and, and I mean, we've talked a lot about <clears throat> again where you came from and stuff like that. Um, but maybe I was wondering if if like uh, going back a couple of decades. Was was like? Uh, did you know from the get go that you had to go to art center? Like, was that your number one uh, uh, wish, and it came true, or were you like? Was that kind of like a, a last resort kind of thing? Um, and uh, what did like more in terms of like? Um, What happened after Art Center? Did you get a job right away? Was it always smooth sailing, or were there times where, like, you were uh, like, "Okay, this art thing is not working, and I, I wanna, I should really become an accountant or something like that." I don't know. Um, so I, 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 I want to know those kind of things as well. Okay. Well, um, I think if, if you look at traditional illustration. Um, it was for advertising. It was for magazines. You know, it was largely broken into advertising and editorial. And oddly enough, neither one of those disciplines exists anymore. Um, so I wanted to become an artist, and then you know, I'll 
don't have to go into it, but you know, your parents say, well, how are you going to make a living? Well, there is such a thing as illustration. And if I had known at the time, well, actually, there is no such thing as illustration. Advertising and, and uh, editorial, they're, they're gone. <laughs> so I was going into a meat grinder and not even knowing it. Um, and the decision to go to Art Center... I mean, you have to understand. I mean, there was there there were there was no entertainment design. There was no game industry. It just didn't exist. and they would later hire me was an unknown to me at that time. Um, but my dad, uh, see, I spent two years in a liberal arts college, and uh, my dad said, "Look, you're wasting your time. You're going to get out of there and be completely unemployed." So I think uh, one night we were at a restaurant and he had like a few too many highballs and he said, look, you, you gotta, uh, you like cars, you like technical stuff, and you like drawing and art. What does that combine? Industrial design. Okay, what's the best school for industrial design? Let's look it up here. Art center. Oh yeah, a place where they do cars. And the decision was made. Wow. So that, um, and then I went through both programs. I, I was there for quite a long time. And I remember, um, I think after my first year, year and a half, three semesters, uh, I had three instructors come to me and say, you know, you really should go do something else. You don't have any ability with this at all. And was that the design portion or the illustration? Portion? That was, that was, uh, that was in the design program. Um, I was quite weird and off the wall with things that I would do. Um, it's really kind of strange because I find that my artwork, my illustration is an anachronism. Um, it is very traditional and backwards looking, very 19th century. But the things that I would design in the design classes were really kind of strange and out there. Um, but the instructors that I had in the basic classes, you know, perspective, uh, drawing, how value works on things, I suppose wasn't too impressive to uh, the, the teachers that I had. Uh, and my grades weren't that good. So um, I kind of said to them, look, I got no place else to go. I don't know what else I'm going to do. <laughs> so I, I persevered. And I think by... Uh, I went back home for a semester and worked my ass off for four or five months. And I came back to Art Center and then was doing very good work that I think people uh, started to acknowledge. Um, I don't think I ever got a scholarship. It was always funny because everybody would put together a portfolio of their work and give it to a review committee. And then they would uh, award scholarships on the basis of merit, not need. And so I did that, and uh, they never gave me a dime. I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't think they ever did. So, uh, you know, the scholar, I mean, I was doing better work, but clearly not, you know, probably not even the upper fifty percent of the of the class. Um, so that was unfortunate, and you know, the fact that I've been able to make a living at art and illustration. I, I thought that I was pretty much giving up a, a family or ever owning a house that I wanted to do this, or I really didn't have anything else that I could do um, 
that I would never have the trappings of a middle-class life. I was always going to be a starving artist. But the fact that I can support myself with this is really quite amazing. And I, I, of course, owe that all to the gaming and the movie world, who are now employing artists like me uh, in ever-increasing numbers, now to the point where it's absolutely insane the number of people that are getting into this world. It's like the ubiquity of gaming. Everybody has a computer. They love gaming. I think I want to draw creatures and design games. Uh, how, how many accounts do they have on ArtStation now? Isn't it like in the millions? I mean, it's like a significant percentage of the people on the planet all want to do this for a living. And, uh, you know, people are always saying, well, West artists need to unionize. I don't really know how uh, practical that is. I mean, I, obviously there is a downward pressure on prices because of a, a, a huge oversupply of artists and really good artists. Um, so I'm not sure how effective unionizing will be, um, but it's certainly a, a something to think about because I do know that prices, at least in the gaming world, and the and at the initial part of the gaming world, um, they were hiring people out of the movie business wholesale and paying extreme prices because the gaming uh, world and market was very immature, and you know now things have definitely stabilized. Prices have dropped by a factor of ten, and you know they're hiring people on pennies on the dollar from what they were in say 2005 when they were trying to get things off. But in the movie business is you know a long-standing mature market, so it's always been um, uh, prices always been pretty low in that because everybody wants to work on movies. If uh, you try to organize or um, uh, negotiate higher wages. Let's say, well, we're going to get somebody else. We have a list of, of five thousand people here that would love to do what you're doing, and yeah, that has. You know. <laughs> so it, it's um, it is supply and demand. Is the market will show its force regardless of how organized you may become. Yeah, I mean now uh, you know artists are turning to. Uh, uh, you know NFTs. You know, as part of that, uh, you know, overflow. Because I think, you know, there's, you know, like you said, there's an overflow of artists, and now, now, NFTs are a thing, uh, or they they are, were, will be. You know, who knows? But um, you you know, and and I know you kind of recently got into it. I mean, is there any? Uh, particular reason uh, that you got in now? Uh, anything you want to talk about there? Well, I think um, the reason why, I mean, uh, that in the time period that I've been doing commercial art, uh, I've seen many, many different attempts at uh, selling illustration as fine art. I remember in Santa Barbara, I saw uh, there was a, a storefront that was uh, had uh, Drew Struzan prints and you know even some originals you, know, you could find, um, and people tried to sell them as, as fine art for people's walls. It never really went too well. Uh, if you go to ha.com uh, heritage auctions, um, not only do they have super high resolution uh, reproductions of Lion Decker paintings, which are so awesome, um, but you can find all kinds of artwork and posters from popular culture uh, that are being bought and sold on the open market and uh, for not very high prices. Um, so when I see uh, Beeple uh, sell something for 70 million and he's an illustrator like me, 
it tends to get one's attention. So I think like, okay, our, for, for some reason, the clouds have parted. At this moment in history, forces that I do not understand are all aligning so that all of a sudden, illustrators are hip for 10 minutes. And of course, now <laughs> that's all gone. Um, so, yeah, that tends to get your attention, uh, you know, that, that that has in fact happened. And, you know, I and I know uh, Mike is he wants his work to live forever. And he, um, you know, thinks of the, the 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 association of his artwork with with crypto or NFT is a temporary one. And that's kind of the way I look at it is, you know, OK, there is a difference between using uh, crypto and uh, well, specifically an NFT as a certificate of authenticity, and you know people say, well, it doesn't really, you're, it doesn't really prove anything. This is absolutely true, and I think what people are really reacting to is the corruption of the fine art market to begin with. Um, you know that it, it's been a total cesspool forever, and. Say, I mean, just look at the how interests are aligned when you have a painting of an unknown uh, origin. Uh, the seller, the buyer, and the uh, the expert all have great incentive to say that this thing is real. And it it's a total pyramid scheme and a greater fool theory. That that is the art market. Crypto has nothing to do with that corruption. So. The idea of you know crypto being you know, really bad for the planet, well, it doesn't have anything to do with with the art markets. And I'm not speculating on crypto. I you know I have I minted one NFT, and that that uh, you know that in, that single entry in the ledger, I don't think is you know killing massive numbers of people. Some people have said, uh, well, because you're a high profile artist, more people are going to get into it. And selling their art as NFTs, that's fine. I definitely agree of uh, people uh, spamming and pump and dump schemes and selling dubious quality material uh, purely on speculative uh, basis. Yeah, that's really ridiculous. And it's self-correcting because it will go away because it is a scam. There's no value underneath it. So the bubble will burst and it will go away. And what we're left with is... Uh, an NFT, which is a new way of, of, I think it's an additional tool to for experts. It just it's one more reinforcing piece of uh, authentication of what something is. So you know that's that's totally fine. Um, but yeah, I've gotten uh, so so much uh, um, you know negative opinion about it, extreme hyperbole about. You know, destroying the planet, um, and you know I'm, but the the aspect of the fine art market that it's simply um, helped along by uh, the involvement of crypto. Um, you know, it, it's very small. Uh, it's it's a different activity than um, you know minting ten thousand editions of, of you know a bouncing ball or something. Um, you know, this clearly that that is meant to uh, make somebody rich very quickly, and if somebody invests in that, well, I, I I don't see how their stupidity becomes the responsibility of the rest of us. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, anyway, yeah, N- NFTs. Uh, it, it's it's simply uh, a tool, and I know that Ethereum has been promising POS since what time immemorial since they were you know first out. But these are technical engineering problems that that will I believe be solved. And I think the downturn in crypto is more a response to what's going on um, in the, the the larger world economy, and you know we're up against uh, demographic forces that are uh, possibly upending free trade world order, and we might be looking at an extended recession globally, and. Uh, interest rates are going up, and yeah, obviously people are looking for more stable uh, assets from the middle of the of, of the pandemic. Yeah, no, I, I I hear you. I mean, was it? Did you also get in because you were thinking, hey, you know, uh, maybe this can help, uh, you know, maybe help you become free of of having to work for somebody and be able to do it for yourself and. You know, do whatever you wanted. Uh, was there any part of that that rung true to you? Well, sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, if you have an asset that is either worth one dollar or ten million dollars, um, you should probably convert that into another form as quickly as possible before the market condition changes. That only makes sense. Um, yeah, I just don't really see the difference between traditional fine art markets and one that has crypto grafted onto it. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if I would have seen people sell at Christie's, which is a traditional uh, um, art house, he could have sold that for um, for dollars with a certificate of authenticity, and it would have been exactly the same thing. But who knows um, whether or not you know, crypto's in, in involvement in that changed the calculus of why he uh, became a um, such you know, why that auction was so high. Um, you know, I've heard people speculate about oh, it was used to prop up a certain uh, cryptocurrency. Well, it's possible. Um, I don't think the whole thing is a scam, although. There have, I mean, it is such a wild west that there is, yeah, about 95% of it is utter scam because there is no value underneath any of it, um, which is, that's really too bad. But as I say, that is self correcting. That will go away. And I hope people are not as stupid as to invest in a picture of an ape thinking that they're going to retire because there's no value underneath it. <laughs> I mean, how is that difficult to see? <laughs> um, so, you know, if people want to speculate on, you know, my stupid painting, uh, that's on them. I offer it. I'm not saying to anybody that you should. I'm not even having... There is, I think, a rational argument to value, um, whereas a lot of the other speculative stuff there is not. Um, so it's probably a better longer-term investment um, when you invest in something that has some type of deeper connection to the to, to the larger culture. It has an influence to it because that's what that's what makes value in art is 
how much has it influenced what comes later? Say, for instance, um, the 19th century academic painters like Bouguereau and beautiful paintings. But what came 50 years later? Well, the Armory Show and Cubists and Expressionists. So that was a dead end. And you could pick up a Bouguereau in 1950 for $1,000. Why? Because it did not influence what came after it. But uh, a Brock, uh, you know, from 1913 is worth $100 And um, because it was a seminal piece of uh, a current in the culture that has become um, um, well dominant. So that is, I think, a rational argument to value. Whereas, you know, the rest of it, you know, the crypto bros saying, "Hey, man, we're all going to get rich." You know, it, it's like the Keystone cops all holding on to each other, you know, hovering over the cliff. You know, they're going to start to drop one or the other. So, in that sense, you know, I haven't felt you know this, this horrible guilt about offering an NFT for sale because I'm simply offering something at auction, and if it does well. That means that somebody thought that it had some value. I certainly hope that they're not. I mean, and, and if they are buying it on speculation, well, I think that that is rationally based, but it may not. Uh, but again, that that is on the buyer, not on me. You can offer anything for sale in the world, and is it on? It, it, is the responsibility on the person that? That is putting something out there and possibly selling it and with ridiculous hyperbole, is that immoral? If there are idiots out there willing to buy it, that's an interesting question. <laughs> the, the you know the the answer to that may be yes, and I think most people on the left would say yes, and most people on the right would say no, and that's uh, I think that's the basis of a lot of the uh, the horrors you see on Twitter about this stuff. You have any thoughts on that? Jan? No, I'm. I feel like I'm. I'm, I'm still struggling to find wh what what to do about this uh, whole NFT space, and uh, I don't have any better explanation answer for that than Craig does. To be honest, I don't think anybody uh, don't does know, really. To be honest that, with you, but, um, it's 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 a crazy world. I mean, we are in a crazy, crazy time now where there are so many of these new things that are popping up left and right, you know, with with NFTs and, uh, you know, uh, and then the recent thing, you know, the, the whole AI stuff. I mean, that's a whole thing now. Um, I don't know if you had a question there, Jan, that you wanted to sort of bring in or something else you wanted um, to I talk mean, about. I think AI is, is interesting, but I mean, kind of judging by what Craig said earlier, um, I feel like we, we have a good idea of, of what he would say about it um, in terms of it being another kind of like tool, another kind of thing. Um, or I don't know, Craig, maybe, maybe, maybe you disagree and maybe you think AI has, will have a bigger impact than any of these um, fads like 3D and photo bashing. Um, have, have, you, have you kind of played with it or kind of thought about it? Oh yeah, I've thought a lot about it. I, you know, I've thought a lot about, uh, and I'm not surprised with going on, um, and that people. Uh, well, let, let's go back a little bit. Like uh, you look at Deep Blue and how they taught it to play chess, through teaching it every conceivable 
you know, opening and chest that you could manage and then it would brute force its way through possible moves from that point forward and became a really strong chess player then they taught it to play go and the way that was done is adversarial they had two machines playing against each other 10 trillion times and it learned uh what works and i think the you know traditional um description of ai is well it's mechanical uh it uses brute force to simulate complexity um but i was struck by uh the commentators on the go match looking at uh the ai playing and saying it was stunningly original and beautiful as to what it was doing and that is not what uh you know we've always kind of stereotyped ai to be and now with the advent of you know ai art coming along and you know i like you guys the first time i saw what it was doing i was like holy shit fuckers you know that's incredible um but now it it kind of looks like filter art to me you know i can like i was saying like you know with a whole bunch with ours, you put a whole bunch of AI images in a folder, and then you put one or two by a human being, and you can spot the human being. I mean, it's extremely narrow at this point, but we're at the absolute beginning of this. And um, I, I do have a rather deterministic view of what human nature is. Um, I don't think magical about what is encased in our skulls. Therefore, that means it can be simulated and duplicated. I think that AI eventually will be another way of human beings to reproduce themselves besides their sexual organs. And that AIs will not have spirituality, but I don't think, you know, well, they might, but, but I don't think there's anything magical going on. So will you be able to build a, an AI Mozart? Yes, absolutely, because it learns the same way that we do. It goes out into the world understands things and puts them together in a certain way and eventually it will be become very much like us uh, it, it will pass any turing test that you can throw at it um but as far as like an ai living a life for 50 or 60 years yes it's going to have to go out and and, and see things and you know almost live as a human to have and experience and react to things the same way but you know another aspect of humanity that i think is is not part of this equation is the lower brainstem uh the will to power dominance jealousy greed anger self-preservation those things are not part of uh our rationality they're part of something that lives at the bottom of the spine that an ai would have no need for it would have no need to develop it simply wouldn't be part of it. But I am worried that... So, and the one reason that's why I'm not really worried about AI uh, taking over the planet or you know, destroying humankind, it would have absolutely no reason to do so because we are assuming self-preservation is part of it, and it's not. But if somebody starts using AI in the context of war, then they're going to have to harden it survivability and they probably will give it self-preservation um, just to serve its function better. And that, that could be a problem. Um, 
so anyway, th- th- those are mm-hmm. those are some thoughts on on uh, on what I see in, in AI. I don't, I don't think anybody has to worry about it. You know, I, but I do think that AI, the, not just concept artists are going to be out of a job, but uh, game designers, everybody will be out of a job. And is in the long term, that's <laughs> great because it's going to automate, and that that will be a, a eventually an, a huge increase in wealth for every human being alive the money does slosh around and it will give us the freedom to i mean the overall like you know said people have observed that some of the poorest people living in developed countries today live better than a, you know the french king did in 1500 because of the increased wealth and you know think about how increased wealth and better means of production and efficient uh corporate allocations of capital has allowed the world to support concept artists of all Hmm. people. I mean, uh, you know, that's quite amazing. So in the long term, I think that, uh, AI is going to be a net benefit as long as somebody doesn't, uh, you know, give it the wrong brain parts. (laughs) Okay. So, I mean, that's that's ultimately, sorry, sorry, that's ultimately the, the outcome of a sort of AI, but I, you know, like, I guess a question would be, well, would, what would you say to the, you know, because a lot of people are feeling like, well, it's taking over the industry, but it's also doing it unethically because it's sampling a lot of different people's work. That's what human beings uh, do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, oh, you mean like, like, like people, photo bashing and all that, that stuff? It's like, Okay, did you invent taking a two-dimensional surface and dragging a contrasting abradable material across it to uh, to simulate three-dimensional space? People, you know, oh, you invented that. Well, why don't you trademark that? So, yes, obviously it's learning from other artists, but oh yeah, I just get kind of you know tired of of that type of. Um, you know, very reflexive uh, fear um, of 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 just everything that's changing me. It's no, that's how human beings do. I I started my life wanting to paint like Sid Mead and John Singer Sargent, and did I use their way of thinking, their mannerisms, their their shape design, their their whole way of of doing things? Absolutely, I did. But I did move on from there. Which is, as I said earlier on, that's the way things should go. Fair enough. Would would you use AI art? I mean, would you if it's uh, this tool that that generates some results that you were saying, wow, that would you use it? Absolutely. I, I haven't really. Uh, I mean, I played around with it just a little bit here and there, and I did uh, uh, put a painting into there, and it did something to a castle that I thought was interesting and it's very similar to like, uh, you know, a 3d package spitting out a render and like, okay, how it understood light on, on that form is not how I would have done it, but I think it's interesting what Mm -hmm. happened. So I'm going to use that. Now, would I use it directly in the painting? Perhaps 15 years ago, I would have, I wouldn't. I would simply uh, take that conception and include it into my own and then draw and paint it in a more traditional way, you know, directly with my hand. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't let, you know... Yeah, sorry, Jan, you, no, you were saying something. I was just going to, again, oh, drag sorry. us away from the art talk and 
I was gonna say like okay, so the like uh, I don't know like it's 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 uh, it's it's Tuesday and um, the AI has done your commercial work for you. Um, it's 9 a.m. and um, you're done with the tasks for the day. What 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 does what do you do besides art? Like I don't know. Like let's say you get rich with NFTs next week and you have a hundred million dollars. Would you still I don't know. Would you still do art? I uh, I. I I believe I would. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then, yes, the, yeah. There's, there's no doubt. But you know, you can never really. Um, I think you know, putting yourself in, in the shoes of somebody with uh, those resources and how that distorts your of personality. Course, of course. I don't think any any anybody can really answer that question totally truthfully until they're there. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just I'm just I'm just mm -hmm. uh, I'm just trying to think like okay, I mean you have an interest in like classical music and I mean um, you have a family and out of all places you 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 moved to Hawaii, right? Um, yes. What does that all amount to? Like, um, is this uh, is this creating a better environment for you to focus on your art? Um, Or was it was it a kind of I don't know was it running away from I don't know not having to live in LA or um, how 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 does that um, how does that all help you create better art? Well, I can hear the birds, um, so that's a nice environment. Oh yeah, and and, and they do that in January too. Um, <laughs> yeah, Hawaii is a fascinating place i've wanted to uh, live here since i was about 15 or 16 i kind of decided that that is where i wanted to be uh for a whole bunch of reasons that are rather complex um uh But yeah, I mean, I I think you know, getting into you know, Hawaii as a place and what makes it fascinating to me is is a little outside of. I mean, it, that that's like a two-hour okay. topic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think, uh, uh, but yeah, but you ahead. know, I I, I yeah, I, I spent like 18 years in LA, mm. and um, and and moving here in 2001, um, I've loved every minute of it. Mm. It it is home. Absolutely. Interesting, interesting. What do you do there? I mean, is there like, a, I mean, some people would surf, obviously, Hawaii, I mean, it's a typical thing, but I mean, do you enjoy per particular things that only Hawaii has to offer? What What do you love about Hawaii? Uh, well, do you like windsurfing? Uh, Maui is good for that. Um, I've awesome, got yeah. uh, um, two acres here where it rains 80 inches a year. And that creates probably a few yards of yard waste a day that needs to be processed. I have uh, organic um, bananas and um, avos and mangoes and, and lychee. And so keeping up with all that is a, a huge amount of work because uh, you know, things grow very quickly here. Yeah, but the soil is actually quite poor. You can't grow a tomato here. Uh, because of the extremely high rainfall, the the soil is very acidic and leached, and it's basically clay. It has uh, almost no organic content at all. So if I want to grow things that are not tropical, adapted to these soils, 
Um, I have to you know, use a grinder to grind up huge amounts of organic material. I have to change the pH of the soil. Um, it's, it's a big task. Um, but you know, if the boats ever stop, we're probably in pretty good shape here. <laughs> I'll just you know, chase the chickens around. Uh, but I've always thought, you know, like if the boats stop here, and uh, by that I mean like the outside world completely goes to hell, um, that the social order uh, would invert. You know, the the uh, the the, the white collar bankers, uh, technologists, concept artists they would go to the bottom and the people who are blue collar would go to the top and that's a fascinating change to me no that is interesting but you do enjoy doing that yeah I mean, I, that is a big part of, I, I i really do like know, your life i like there. physical labor i love being outside i just absolutely love it and you know the house that we're in here it has no heating or cooling um some part open uh so yeah it's a it, it's like living in the womb if you, if you do say like you like physical <laughs> physical things physical labor is it is it also like if you if you wouldn't have to do commercial art would you go completely analog like you would you go completely to physical media again no if you didn't I, have I, the not, pressures not completely of, the whole reason why i bought a computer with photoshop in the first place is because There is um, uh, a real cost or, or a risk to trying anything in traditional media. If you have a big stretch canvas and you do something to it, it's not easily reversible. You get media buildup, and sometimes you know things can get a little gooey, and uh, it's it's risky and expensive. So the idea was to take color roughs or the finished painting at certain points and change it before committing to the real physical work. So I would still use uh, the computer for what I think it's best at. Um, but I, I, I don't know if I would continue painting finished paintings in Photoshop. I'm not really sure about that. I, I, I would definitely still use the tools, but in a more supporting way because You know, if you've painted digitally a long time, just go get yourself some ink and a beautiful brush or some gouache and, and put some marks down. And it's just like going from, uh, you know, 480p to 8K. <laughs> it, I mean, the world is so rich. You know, the analog world is just so incredible and traditional media is so incredible. And it, it, it's kind of, it's too bad to me sometimes when, when, I don't know, this is a contradiction because I'm moving towards you know, using uh, digital tools more as, as analog, um, but you know, digitally you have so much freedom, you have an infinite supply of canvases, they take up no space, you can try anything, there is no cost to it at all, that people don't really do that. And they they because it's so easy to go off in in some strange direction the idea of branching uh idea of compositing strange things on top of your painting i think you know thomas Scholes is he's really uh raised that to an art you know really tried to explore what you can do by painting with something other than 
I use the paintbrush and I make semi-parallel marks that are longer than they are wide, grouped together. You know, which is just the the simplest metaphor in the world. Um, so yeah, I I don't know if I would uh, continue to do finished stuff in, in in digital or not. I think I probably wouldn't. And another thing I was I was I think it's something you mentioned um, just just to, just to get kind of like my my last question out here. Um, I think it's something you mentioned earlier in the in the uh, in in this episode, and also something you you mentioned on a previous interview um, that you that you really dislike your own uh, uh, art, and you mentioned it has something to do with just how we perceive our own art. But you also mentioned that. Um, It's often the case that uh, when the client really hates your your work, um, you like it, and if you <laughs> if you like it, the client client hates it. Um, uh, sorry, and yeah, if, if if the client likes it, you hate it. So I'm I'm just wondering, like, like what 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 does art that that is created by you and that you like? yourself what does that look like does it exist have you ever done that i don't know i don't know um sometimes i think <laughs> that being an illustrator and and making the compromise to be an illustrator may have atrophied uh my brain and my own desires or instincts to a certain degree because I have to live in the world of somebody else's making. Um, so I really don't know how to answer that question. Maybe maybe I am a, a person without a soul. I don't know. Maybe it's, it's, it's every <laughs> artist has to deal with that. Maybe even fine artists who, uh, I don't know. Yeah, well, they, they absolutely do, because they're, they're like doing this painting saying, I like this, but I know this is not going to sell. I mean, to me, fine art is like illustration, but it's it's a different market and a different way to market. But the pressures mm. are pretty much the same. Unless you are indeed independently wealthy, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, but I don't know. Are, are those people happy with their choices? I don't know. Probably mm, not. Who, the ones with $100 million dollars that just do yeah, whatever I mean, they want? I don't know. Like, it's because like, people say money doesn't make you happy, right? Um, uh, is, yeah. is if you, if you even if you could choose to do whatever you want and you don't have to think about the consequences and you create something, right? Would you still be happy with that, or is that just human nature that you just you'll never be happy with it and you will always aspire to uh, be somebody else? I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of the way I you know felt like I'm saying 15 years ago when I wanted to be all these other artists who I greatly admired and were doing incredible things. Um, well, but you know, sometimes it, it, you, you get paid to be somebody else. Mm. Uh, for instance, on Spider-Man, uh, I was hired and, and, uh, I spent a lot of time learning to paint like Alberto. That was very interesting. In the end, I came to the conclusion that we actually work very similar. There's, uh, there's not as much difference as, as you might think, um, But that was strange, you know, having to turn out work, work that looks like somebody else. And it's funny because a lot of his uh, things have kind of crept into my work 
pro, you know, a more extreme um, emphasis on shape. Uh, and it's funny mm-hmm. how you know mm-hmm. I, I started out trying to you know get um, digital tools to look like gouache, which was inherently more graphic and flat. And then you know working on Spider-Man, that kind of brought that more to the fore. And that was that was pretty cool, because you know I think it's easy sometimes to get lost in gooey uh, um, simulations of oil paint and you know trying to make it look like you know it just gets it's a little bit like the 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 battle between fancy color and how high value contrast. I mean, do you do you really go with something like comic work that has a lot of value impact to it? Or do you go with more HDR, which has inherently less contrast, but much prettier color? And, you know, shape versus lost edge. I mean, there's a beauty in a lost edge, but there's also a beauty in a super strong, clear, defined, decided upon shape. And kind of going back and forth. And I, I'm, I'm trying to include both that I mean how can i get both of these ideas use both of these concepts at their strengths in my work so my work may may be complex in terms of the paint and paint texture um, but within the shapes the contrast of the paint texture is fairly low so that the overall shape language is still strong and that's one way I've kind of found to, to get the best of both worlds. Does that make any sense? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know Definitely. that's it's, it's a little bit esoteric. You know, I, oh. I doubt it. But I mean, you know, that's who's listening to this podcast is, you know, other other artists. Exactly. Uh, Emmanuel, do you, have, do you have another question you wanted to ask? I actually do. Um, I, you know, we've talked briefly about sort of certain, you know, burnout things and, you know, we haven't really gone much into it. I, I actually want to know, have you ever uh, got to a point where you were burned out and what happened? What did you do to sort of write that ship? Yes. I mean, to a certain extent, burnout is, it's a first world problem to be sure. You know, just, just stop eating for a while. You'll get motivated real fast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, to do the absolute best work is, you know, if, if you try to be at the top of a certain profession, the differences between the best and number 100 are 0.01%. So motivation and burnout are a factor, uh, you know, when, when, you know, your improvement curve is so flat. So, um, yeah, I think the, the, the cure to me is to get that improvement curve or that learning curve more vertical and to branch out into other things and to, here's a real practical tip, uh, go to Twitter, Instagram and don't really, and, and, and find work that you really hate and download it look at it look at a whole bunch of it like i was saying earlier you know a whole bunch of thumbnails analyze how it works if it's there it has an audience some people there's a group of people that like it for some reason and try to do uh some work in that style like say for instance uh velvet paintings of uh, neon velvet paintings of of religious figures 
you know, try to do one for yourself. Uh, how about uh, you know, super sexy anime girls with giant forelocks? Okay, you may or may not like that, but um, really commit yourself to, to to trying to understand how it works, even though you may not like it. Uh, so you're you're kind of um, because I, I do know that what you like in five years probably you can't predict right now and how you develop and how your taste change changes. And so why not make that uh, process a bit more intentional um, and find something that uh, you're, you're not really into or, you, or maybe I should say not really into it. Maybe you don't understand and mm. uh, um go about trying to understand it. This is what you know, so they say, trying to get that, that learning curve steeper again. If you're a strictly 2D artist, learn 3D. Um, there's so many things that you could learn that are related to art that can really help you get uh, some of your interests back. I think everybody, all illustrators working now should uh, learn as much about art history as they can and you know looking at different cultures and and from that you actually branch out into more traditional history and that's utterly fascinating and then seeing how those connections and how different people living in different places being influenced by i mean at its most basic by geography you can trace all the way through into the type of art they make at different times um, and to me, that makes you know, looking at art I may not understand or like infinitely fascinating because you see the, those connections all the way back to the physicality of the environment that the people who made it in, in you know lived in. Mm. And um, yeah, it, it's um, like for instance, uh, uh, the Sargent book that I got when I was a kid. So the, the author is a guy named Carter Ratcliffe. And it's a big, huge coffee table book. I bet most people have it who are listening to this podcast. How many people have read it? You should read it. It's utterly fascinating. It gives so much insight into who he was as a human being. And, you know, I, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, a lot of people have, have had this experience when, you know, I know some artwork has spoken to me when I am intrigued by the person who made it. I want to know who they are. I want to mm. talk to them. I want to know everything, like, who was it that created this? Whereas if the art doesn't speak to me, oh, well, I don't know. Some some person made it. <laughs> but, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, you look at it, and you're really quite fascinating about where did that come from? And... You know that, like the you know that sergeant book. You know, I've, I've read you know a lot of other uh, things. Um, you know, having to do with sergeant, there's quite a bit of stuff out there. You know, even some of his descendants wrote uh, some biographies of him. But the the Ratcliffe book is, um, I believe, Ratcliffe is a, a is an art historian and a poet. I I think. Um, but it, it, it really is quite quite amazing. You have to you know, read about Sargent's, uh, uh, how he got ran out of Paris and ended up in London for the rest of his life. You know, what was around that? And think about your own artistic uh, disasters <laughs> and, uh, you know, how that happened to him and how he remade himself doing something completely different. 
or not completely different, but just starting over from from a disaster. Actually, it was a triumph, you know, in in retrospect, but at the time it was, you know. Um, anyway, um, yeah. Does so? Does that give you some answer to like how I look at the burnout question? No. Yeah. More definitely more than uh, more than I asked for. Um, and I probably have that book, and I definitely didn't read it, uh, which would give me a lot of. Um, I, yeah, I was looking I, at the pictures, yeah. man. But I will go and read it. <laughs> no, it does sound interesting, and I think it's so true what you're saying that uh, you know, take yourself out of that that uh, hole by learning about other things and reinvigorating is definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah. It sounds really good to me, and it's speaking to me right now. So yeah, you know, um, I think that's very powerful. Think about like analogous colors, right? Colors that are next to each other on the on the color wheel. Well, think of an, uh, analogous uh, disciplines and in, in areas of study, things that are right next to art that could improve your art, and to a certain extent, that to me is is extreme professionalism when no detail escapes you. Like when, you know, what would be a peripheral study to art? Okay, um, how about this? Uh, knowing how uh, manufacturing processes work. Like when you have a mold, you have to have a draft on it to be able to get the object out of the mold. Okay, so uh, learning about how things are made, how they're assembled, out of what materials, um, that is to me up against uh, what the art world is. But if you understand it, I think it will echo through your work and make it more believable, especially if you're making something, you're designing something that doesn't exist. Uh, knowing manufacturing techniques and, and philosophies is going to make it more credible, which is what you're trying to do in the first place. No, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I can't agree more. I think that. that's a that's a good note to kind of close it out. We're already over an hour. Um, I okay. think it has been a really really enlightening conversation, at least for me. Um, so I wanted just to uh, thank Craig so much for taking the time to uh, come on this podcast and share all this great knowledge with with everyone. Um, and um, of course, Emmanuel for being on the podcast and uh, bringing Craig on. Um, and uh, yeah so if you guys have any more questions uh, any more feedback please leave that in the comments um, please like and subscribe um, and let us know who you want to uh, see in the future on this podcast or at least here um, so again thanks to Craig for coming on <laughs> and um, I'll we'll guys see you in the next episode alright thank you both All right, bye everybody <laughs>